You're going to have to bear with me a bit this morning as I'm losing my voice. Seasonal allergies have gotten me, and so you just bear with me. Listen clear, listen well, as good as you can in this service, and you might even pray that I make it through the next. (laughs) If you don't mind, you might pray for that. I'm going to be in Psalm chapter 130. Psalm chapter 130. I want you to open your Bible and, and look there. We're continuing in our summer series called The Walk of Wisdom, and we've selected passages that we're going to teach from the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons that I've picked this psalm or picked a psalm is because I love the way they're, they're written. The authors in the book of Psalms are so honest, so authentic, so transparent. They just say whatever they're thinking. They say it to God and it's full of emotion and And I appreciate it because anything that I have ever felt or thought or feared or wondered or questioned, somebody in the book of Psalms has felt it too. And when I read it, I realize and I'm comforted by the fact that I am not alone. This particular psalm is called a psalm of ascent, meaning that the Israelites sang it as they ascended up into Jerusalem to worship God. They would do this at least three times a year. The whole nation would gather in Jerusalem for a feast or a festival. And because Jerusalem sits up, it sits elevated um, in terms of all the land surrounding it, the villages and the cities around it set at a lower elevation, that, that literally geographically uh, the Israelite nation would walk up. They would ascend into Jerusalem, so called a psalm of ascent. It's, it's one of the reasons that the Old Testament writers so often um, refer to looking up or going up, and they connect that idea to worship. This is why. Now, what's fascinating about this particular psalm is that the spiritual ascent that the psalmist makes in the psalm, we don't know who this author is, we'll just refer to him as the psalmist. So the spiritual ascent that the psalmist makes in the psalm mirrors the physical ascent that the Israelites would make as they headed up to Jerusalem. And the thing that fuels this spiritual and emotional ascent from the depths of despair because of the psalmist's sin to the high ground of steadfast hope in the Lord, the thing that fuels that spiritual ascent is the unconditional forgiveness of God. You see, the subject matter of this psalm applies to every single one of us at the very deepest level. Frankly, it doesn't get more, any more important than what we find right here. In fact, what we're going to see in this very characteristic of God is the basis for our relationship with him, and it is the source of our hope. Psalm 130 is broken down into four two-verse sections. They're called uh, couplets. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety, and then I'm going to make four observations, one from each of the couplets as we work our way through the text. So follow along with me as I read from Psalm 130, beginning in verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, 
that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father, would you add your blessing to the reading of your word this morning? Thanks for the beautiful poetry of this song, for the repetition, for the restatement that emphasizes this deep truth about your nature and who you are. I pray that we would see it clearly, open our eyes. I pray that we would hear it well, open our ears, and I pray that we would respond to it by the power of the Spirit as we apply these truths in our own life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first observation is found in the first couplet, verses 1 and 2. So look there at the beginning of verse 1 just for a moment. Those first four words, out of the depths. In the Hebrew, that refers to being trapped in dangerous and deep waters. It's this idea of being swallowed up or drowning in the deep. And it reminds us of of Jonah, when Jonah, who disobeyed God, and he prayed from the belly of the fish at the bottom of the ocean, in the depths, he cried out to God because of his sin, which is exactly the same reason that the psalmist is in the depths here. He's buried spiritually and emotionally under the burden of his own sin. You can sense the despair, the desperation, the the hopelessness that the psalmist feels. And it's from there, from the depths, that he cries out to God for mercy. That's what that phrase, voice of my supplications, means. He cries out to God for mercy. Here's the observation. When it comes to our sin, the only way up is down. See, when it comes to our sin, the only way to ascend spiritually is to first go down into the depths. Here's what I mean. What strikes me about the psalmist is how aware he is of his own sin. See, he recognizes it. We don't know what his sin is. The psalmist doesn't say. It doesn't matter. He's guilty and he knows it. It grieves him. It weighs on him. He's aware of his sin and he's aware of his great need for forgiveness. That's why he cries out, Lord, hear my voice. Lord, be attentive to my cry. Lord God, have mercy on me. Now read that and I don't like it. I don't like the idea of crying out. Don't like the image that I have in my head right now even of this psalmist crying out. Don't don't like the way it sounds to me. Just doesn't sit well with me. As I as I study this passage this week, I'll just tell you the truth. I I found myself kind of distancing from this part of the psalm. Like Like writing it off, wow, this guy's sin must have been brutal. Glad I'm not where he is. Let's just kind of get on with the psalm. Here's what I would like for us to consider, and I'm including myself in this. I would suggest that we don't cry out like the psalmist because we're not as aware of our own sin. 
But don't cry out like the psalmist because we're not as aware as he was of our need for forgiveness. You see, I think we either discount our sin, like it's not as bad as someone else's, so I don't need to take that to God, or we move past it so fast, either I'm sorry, let's just move on with it, or I don't know what to do with all this, so I'll just stuff it, that, that we move so fast past it that we miss the gravity of it. We don't get to the place of crying out because we don't sit with it long enough. We don't like to feel the weight of it. And because we don't feel the weight of it, we don't feel the need to cry out. This guy sits with it. He sits in the dissonance. He sits in the alienation. He sits in the reality of it. I have turned my back on God. I have rejected his goodness. I have, in fact, gone my own way. He's aware of how it's left a wake in his life, and he owns it before God. This guy goes down first. And when he goes down into the depths, he becomes aware of his desperate condition apart from God. And it's from there that he cries out to the only one who can help. And when he cries out, he begins to ascend. See, when it comes to our sin, the only way up is actually down. Okay? I'm going to build on that. Couplet number two, look at verses three and four. Start with verse three. If you, Lord should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Answer, no one, no one. I don't think there's anyone in the room today that would argue with me that they are, in fact, not a sinner. If God held our sins against us, no one would stand a chance. And to take this one step farther, when it comes to relationship with a perfectly righteous and holy God, it doesn't matter how many sins you've committed and it doesn't matter how bad you think they are, one is enough. It's like Ricky Bobby said, if you're not first, you're last. That's just the truth when it comes to our sin. That's it. Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of one tree in the whole garden. In the minute they made that one thing more important than their relationship with God, they could not still stand in his presence. They went off and hid behind the bushes. They began to cover themselves. They couldn't walk with God in the cool of the evening. They couldn't stand in his presence because of the one choice they made to reject his goodness in their life. Just like us. They disqualify themselves from a relationship with a just God. Justice and injustice cannot in any way, shape, or form fit together. And because God's just character, his holiness requires sin to be dealt with, because that's true of God, if he were to proceed according to his justice, if we were in fact to get what we deserve, nothing would keep us from his wrath. But, verse 4, but, oh what a beautiful word, I won't say but, what a beautiful word that is, but 
There is forgiveness, O Lord, with you. There is free, full, ready to be dispensed, limitless, conditionless pardon with God. You cannot separate unconditional forgiveness from God himself. It's who he is. Exodus 34, Moses asked to see God. God grants his request. The Lord passes by in front of Moses and proclaims to Moses. Here's what he said. Here's who I am. The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Maybe you think your sin is so awful that there is no hope for you. Here's your answer right here. Here's your answer. Unconditional forgiveness is who he is. He delights in making forgiveness available to the sinner who cries out to him. Now we take this powerful phrase about the character of God and we connect it to the next thought just as the psalmist does and we're going to see this powerful phrase extended and this is where we'll make our second observation. The psalmist continues, but there is forgiveness with you that so that you may be feared. Here's the observation. Forgiveness leads to fear. Forgiveness always leads to fear. Now, this is counterintuitive. Nobody walked in here this morning and said, hey, you know what goes great together is forgiveness and fear. No, nobody thought that. Forgiveness in God's love or forgiveness in my love for God because he, that, those fit together. Maybe justice and fear, those, forget to, those get together, those connect, but not forgiveness and fear. Here, here's what the psalmist is saying. When God reaches into the depths and restores us to relationship with him, when God reaches down and meets our greatest need, we will be filled with the awe and respect and reverence and trembling that God alone deserves. We will put him in his proper place and we will pay him the honor and the glory that he is due. Why? Because we didn't get what we deserve. That's why. See, Apart from him, you would be wallowing in the depths of your sinful condition. You would. Separated from him for eternity. Nowhere to turn. No end in sight. We fear God because he doesn't leave us there. We fear God because he doesn't hold us accountable for rejecting him. We fear God because he is, in fact, so good. That's the counterintuitive part. Hosea 3.5, the sons of Israel shall fear the Lord and his goodness. Proverbs 16.6, by loving kindness, his goodness, sin is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. One author I read this week said it this way. I absolutely love this quote. He said, when you stand before God, convicted and condemned with the rope around your neck, and God pardons your sins, you then weep for joy 
Hate the evil which you've been forgiven and live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood you've been cleansed. You fear God because you know he had every reason to condemn you and he did not. What's interesting to me here is that the source of fear is not God's judgment. It's not his justice. It's not his wrath for my sins as much as it is his forgiveness of them. Charles Spurgeon said, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. It is grace that leads to fear. That is a powerful, glorious, counterintuitive thought. And when we, like the psalmist, experience the unconditional forgiveness of God, we too will fear Him. We will obey Him and serve Him and worship Him. And it will be our greatest joy to do so, not because there's anything more to gain, but because of the grace that he has already shown us. Forgiveness leads to fear. Couplet number three, look at verses five and six. Psalmist continues, I will wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. What what is the psalmist waiting for? I don't think it's forgiveness. He's already embraced the forgiveness of God. In fact, I think it seems here that he's waiting for intimacy with God, for fellowship with God to be restored. Remember that this is an emotional and spiritual Journey. So the psalmist knows that he's been forgiven. He, he knows that in his head. He, he knows the truth about the character of God. He's waiting to experience that restored fellowship or intimacy in his heart. It's why he says twice, my soul, my heart, the core of my being waits for you. You know, I can apologize to Hillary and she can forgive me. All that I need to say is said. All that she needs to say to me is said. But it still takes a while for intimacy to be restored, right? still takes a while for fellowship in the relationship to be reunited, reconnected. That's what the psalmist is feeling. And that's what he's waiting for. Now notice here that he waits with hope. Right in the middle of all the waiting, I wait, my soul waits, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Right in the middle of all that, into verse 5, is hope. says, in his word do I hope. Literally translated, because God said it, I hope. And see, this is not waiting, wondering if intimacy with God's going to come. This is waiting for intimacy with God that will most surely come. Here's the observation. Hope is guaranteed for those who wait on God. It is. Hope is absolutely guaranteed for those who wait on God. Why? Because his word is true. 
Because he said it, I hope. His promises are sure. What promise? Well, in this case, it's the promise of forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that restores us to intimacy with him. The kind of forgiveness that allows us to stand in his presence. That word is sure. In fact, the psalmist says it's so sure that it's more sure than the the watchman who waits for the morning. Now, morning has never failed to come. No night watchman anywhere in the world ever to live has ever been ultimately disappointed. Maybe it was a long night. Maybe it felt slow, but ultimately he always gets off when the sun rises. The sun always rises. No night watchman has ever been disappointed. And the psalmist says, I wait with that kind of hope. I wait expectantly because I know the intimacy that I long for will surely come. This past Wednesday night, we celebrated Lily's 13th birthday. She's our oldest, and Hillary and I invited uh, four women who are in her life, uh, an old babysitter, a friend from church, or dance uh, coach from school, a friend of Hillary's whose girls Lily has grown up with. We invited them to come over and, and kind of celebrate uh, the ceremony in a way. That it was just a, more of a formal ceremony that celebrates this transition of a young girl to young womanhood. We wanted to mark that, and so we invited these women over, and we shared with Lily. We had a great, great evening together outside having dinner, and, and we shared with Lily what we see in Lily, what, what's unique about her, how God's created her. We talked to her about where worth and identity and value come from, and, and then these women, they, they shared with her um, something that they wished somebody had told them when they were 13. It was unbelievable. I was a mess listening to these women share with my daughter. Just a train wreck. It was powerful. And then at the end of the night, Hillary and I, we gave Hillary a gift and we talked, I mean, gave Lily a gift and, and we talked to Lily about sexual purity. We talked about waiting. We talked about why waiting for marriage is worth the wait. We talked about how something powerful happens when we wait. Just put a bookmark there for a minute. The psalmist The psalmist is waiting on Jesus to come. These words are written before Jesus Christ the Messiah comes, several hundred years before. He's waiting for the full and final forgiveness of God that comes with the cross. We, you and I today, we're waiting, waiting for the full and final consummation of Jesus' kingdom. We're waiting for Jesus to come again waiting for his kingdom rule throughout the earth. For those who are in Christ, waiting is always filled with hope. Yes. And just like for Lily, waiting for sexual intimacy in marriage, our hope is filled with expectation, anticipation, excitement that only grows as we wait on him. See, hope is guaranteed for those who wait on God. Last couplet, the spiritual ascent from the depths is complete and the sinner who was in the depths because of his sin, he becomes the preacher of hope to Israel and now to the church today. Look at verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness 
and with him is abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities or sins. Notice here that the psalmist's language, it changes in the last two verses. He, he moves from personal transformation, verses 1 through 6, to corporate application. And notice here, too, that the verbs change. All the way actually through verse 7, verses 1 through 7, all the verbs are present tense. I hope, I, I wait, my soul waits. They're all present tense. When we get to verse 8, he says, God will redeem, future tense. You see, this last couplet is pointing to something that will come. It's pointing to something in the future that all of Israel can hope in and that all of us can hope in as well. Here's the observation. You can't talk about unconditional forgiveness without talking about Jesus Christ. You can't do it. Cannot talk about the forgiveness of God that leads to, he, to fear, that is the source of our hope, without talking about the work of Jesus Christ. Psalmist hinted at it in the last couplet. Here he just lays it out. How is it that God ultimately expresses his loving kindness, his mercy, and his grace? How is it that God ultimately offers abundant redemption? How is it that God will redeem all of Israel through Jesus Christ who took on the burden of our sin, who sank to the depths underneath the weight of it, who stood in the place of those who could not stand that we might receive forgiveness, embrace it, fear God, and find hope. All of that centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem. There's the word again. Us from every lawless deed. What is a lawless deed? It's sin. To redeem us from sin and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people for his own possession who fear God. That is our hope. You can't talk about unconditional forgiveness without talking about Jesus Christ. Hillary and I had been dating for about um, three years from my sophomore year of college through the summer after I, I graduated um, when I took a job in Fort Worth and she uh, moved to Houston to continue work on her master's in social work. And for about three months leading up to this time, this was June after my graduation, um, I had been telling Hillary something that, that was not true. I've been telling her that I loved her and that I wanted to marry her. Now, when I first started saying that about a year before, it was true. That was the intent of my heart. But over the course of that last year, I had grown less sure about it along the way. And then I got to a place where I, I wasn't sure at all that she was the one. The problem is, is that I didn't tell her that. What I was communicating with my words and actions were not consistent with my heart I didn't tell Hillary the truth, and I was in this moment riddled with the guilt of my own sin. I, I was so convicted, I was miserable. I was in the depths, literally, crying out to God. And you know when you, 
cry out to God for forgiveness, oftentimes that means that you have to go approach someone else as well. And so for me, I had to tell Hillary the truth. So I called her and I, I told her the truth. I owned it. And I told her that I was sorry, I was so sick, that I had misled her, that I was leading her on, that I had lied to her. I, I told her that it was on me, that it was wrong. She was crushed. I mean crushed. You can imagine after three years of kind of moving toward this. And then I invited her. I just said, you know, I, I don't know what this is going to mean for us, but I got to get some things figured out. And I invited her to go to counseling with me just to sort through some things in my own heart. But I told her, I said, listen, I know that's at huge risk for you because we might get a few more months down the road and I'm looking at you saying the, the exact same thing. I invited her to do it and I just said, I'll leave it in your court. If you want to do it, let me know. And I want you to know this, if I never hear from you again, I, I will never say a bad word about you. Th- this is entirely on me. And we hung up in this very awkward silence. I was trembling when I got off the phone. Certainly fearful that I was losing the girl of my dreams. I was fearful. But I was also overwhelmed by God's forgiveness in my life. I don't know how those two things fit together, but they seem to fit together. Overwhelmed by his love for me, his care for me. It's like I was free, released from that bondage in captivity to sin. I was at peace, genuine fear of the Lord. You know, when you're in that place and you feel so small and God reaches down and forgives you, it's like there's just nothing else that I want to do other than worship him, obey him. What should I do next? I mean, it's, it's just fear of the God, it's fear of God as genuine as it can be. And I waited. I waited for Hillary to call. I waited with, with hope, certainly hope that she would call, but also hope that's found in a God who I believed in that moment was in control whether she called or not. I'm not going to say I wasn't scared. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But I was also at peace, the kind of peace that only comes in right relationship with God. Well, several days later, she did call, and I'll never forget her words. She said, Bill, I don't know if I can trust you but I think I can trust God in you and I'm willing to take that chance. You talk about grateful, just grateful. And from that moment on, God began to rebuild me, change me, clean up some of that stuff that could, that could lie in that way to transform me more into his image. God began to restore us. It, it wasn't fast. In fact, it was pretty slow. We didn't get married until well over a, a year later. But I'll tell you this, you know, for, for a God who loves that much, he didn't have to do what he did. But he did it. He didn't have to. But he reached down. He loved me enough to reach down toward me in the pit and lift me out. And I'll just say this, and for 16 years now, Hillary and I have been learning to place our hope for our marriage in the hands of a loving and merciful God who continues to forgive us over and over and over again. And so I'll just join with the psalmist to say what he says to Israel to you. O church, hope in the Lord. Let this sinner become your preacher just for a moment. Hope in the Lord. 
For with him there is loving kindness. He is only and always good. And with him there is abundant redemption. He will redeem all of those who cry out to him. So what? We always ask the question, how do we take and apply this into our own lives? And we're going to apply it this way this morning. We're going to conclude our time of worship together with the Lord's Supper. And as the elements are passed, the bread and the cup, I'm going to invite you into a time of just personal conversation with the Lord that follows the progression in this psalm. And so I'm going to lead us through it, and then I'm going to invite the ushers down when we're finished to pass the elements, and we'll take those elements together. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, just to quiet yourself for a moment before the Lord and allow the words of the psalmist to speak. The conversation that he had with God, we can have as well. And so I'm going to invite you to do that with me this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray along these lines? Father, as we come to you this morning, we're going to begin just right where the psalmist begins, and that is with our own sin. And so, would you ask the Lord to make you aware of your sin? Ask him to show it to you. I'm not talking about some sin of old that you've dealt with and that's been forgiven. I'm just talking about any sin, big or small, that's in your life right now. Would you ask him? to make you aware of it. Some place that you've rejected his goodness. Some place that you've been selfish. Some place that you've chosen your independence or you've acted in pride. Ask him to make you aware of the weight of it the gravity of it. How it alienates you from him and leaves a wake in your own life. And then would you simply confess it to him? That's what it means to cry out. It's just to confess what is true. Would you name the reality? And as you confess it, ask him to forgive you. Oh God, if you were to keep a record of our iniquities, of our sins, who could stand? No one but you don't. And so as you ask him to forgive you, would you embrace his forgiveness? By the power of the spirit that lives in the believer of Jesus Christ, ask him to to show you his forgiveness and then embrace it fully, freely. It's ready to be dispensed. It's limitless. It's conditionless. doesn't matter how dark your sin is. In those words of truth about the character of God, it is done, it is finished, it is gone, it is reconciled, it is over. It's over. Ask him now, mindful of the mercy that he's shown you, maybe in this moment or throughout your life, 
to show you what it looks like to fear him, to pay him the honor and the glory and the respect and the reverence, the awe that he is due. Reflect on his good character, his trustworthiness, his truth, promises that are as sure as his name, which never changes. What would you say to him right now? You might say, Lord, you're good. Lord, your character is trustworthy. I can't believe it. But you help me believe it. Ask him what it looks like to live in intimacy with him. To live in restored fellowship with him. Not not just mental assent that you know you're forgiven, but in core relationship with him, core communion with God through the Holy Spirit, to be in close walk, to walk in intimacy, to know his leading and his guiding, to trust it. He loves you. He desires relationship with you. Ask him that you would experience it this morning. And finally, ask him that you that he would help you to wait for him with hope. To wait with hope. To wait for a restored relationship, intimacy, fellowship, certainly. To wait for his promises to be made true fully and finally. To wait for his son Jesus to return again and to make all things new. Man, I hope that we at Fellowship would be good at waiting. We'd be good at hoping, regardless of the circumstances around us. Trusting that he is good, that his word is true, that his promises are sure. invite you to continue in these moments of reflection just for a couple of minutes and invite the ushers to come down and begin passing the elements. Have you just hold on to the bread and the cup and we'll take that together here in just a moment. And if you're new to fellowship but a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. So just take it, hold on to it, and then we'll take it together here in a moment or two.
you cannot talk about unconditional forgiveness without talking about Jesus Christ. And so we take the bread and the cup to remember together what he did on our behalf. The bread is symbolic of his body broken under the weight of our sin. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And the cup, symbolic of his blood, his blood poured out as a covering for us. The penalty for sin satisfied. Penalty for God's wrath paid. That all who might desire forgiveness in him, restored relationship with him, it's available to all who ask. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Father, we're grateful for this ordinance that reminds us of the truth of who your son Jesus Christ is. The truth of what he's done and the truth of what he will do. We proclaim him until the day that he comes again. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiveness that not only restores us to relationship with you, but it leads us to fear you. And it is the source of our hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.